As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When Malaysians voted last year to oust the party that had been in power for six decades, they wanted change. But after more than a year, the repressive, illiberal laws that characterized the party's rule are still on the books. We ask why. And the global rise in tourism takes different tolls in different destinations. We take a look at how Norway is dealing with one such effect, the growing scourge of fish smuggling. First up, though. The Amazon basin is home to the largest rainforest on Earth. It spans 7 million square kilometers and crosses eight countries in South America. It's key to the global climate, and it's a storehouse of global life. The Amazon is home to about 10 or 15 percent of the world's biodiversity. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent, based in Sao Paulo. It's been a source of food and fuel for the people who live on it for millennia. And its rain supports agriculture throughout the whole region of South America. In recent decades, it's become increasingly clear that the Amazon is also crucial to the entire world. The ability of its trees to store carbon dioxide is one of the most important protections we have left against global warming. But since the 1970s, nearly a million square kilometers have been lost to logging, farming, mining, roads dams, and other forms of development. That's around 17%. There was a brief respite for nearly a decade up until 2012, when the rate of deforestation slowed. But today, it's again on the rise, and the Amazon is approaching a tipping point. If too much of the rainforest is cut down, it could cause the collapse of the Amazon as we know it, and there would be no going back. This risk is higher than ever, 60% of the rainforest sits within the borders of Brazil, and President Jair Bolsonaro is hastening its destruction. His policies may precipitate an ecological collapse that would be felt far beyond the country he leads. Experts believe that if tree loss in the Amazon passes a certain threshold, the deforestation will start to feed on itself. Beyond this tipping point, forest cover will keep shrinking no matter what humans might try to do to stop it. If that were to happen and the Amazon transgressed that tipping point, eventually much of the basin would become a sort of drier tropical savanna. And so what's the nature of that tipping point? What happens there? So the Amazon is unique among tropical rainforests in the extent to which it produces its own rain. As moisture travels from the Atlantic to Peru, the Amazon's trees recycle some of it. They pull rainwater up from the roots to the canopy, then it's released back into the atmosphere and falls as rain. 
So this provides moisture and rainfall to the entire region, and the evaporation off the leaves also has a cooling effect throughout the basin. And so the theory basically says that if a certain part of the forest were to perish or degrade as a result of chopping up bits and pieces because of farming and mining and logging, the loss of that water recycling capacity would mean that very little of the rest of the standing forest would have enough rainfall to survive. One of the pioneers of this hypothesis is Carlos Nobre, a senior researcher with the Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Sao Paulo. I asked him where he believes that tipping point lies, how much of the forest would need to be gone before the water recycling system breaks down. Many studies, including some of my own studies, indicate that fraction of the Amazon forest is around 20 to 25 percent. Currently, over the whole basin, we have about 15-16% of the Amazon basin deforest and another 3-4% under severe degradation. So at the current rates of deforestation, we might cross that tipping point between 15 and 30 years in the future. And so if the Amazon were to pass that tipping point, what would the consequences be? Gradually, over the course of something between 30 and 50 years, 50, 60, up to 70% of the Amazon forest with its rich biodiversity and its very important element for climate storage of carbon would disappear. We would lose a lot of carbon. That carbon will end up in the atmosphere, complicating even more global warming. If we exceeded, it becomes irreversible. There is no way to go back even if we stop deforestation. The Amazon's future is looking increasingly precarious. According to preliminary data from Brazil's space agency, deforestation has accelerated at an alarming rate under the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro. This June's forest loss was 88% higher than last June's. Mr. Bolsonaro called those data lies, and last week he fired the agency's director. And while Mr. Bolsonaro has not been able to put all his environmental policies into law, his attitude does seem to be emboldening illegal loggers. The Brazilian Congress and the courts have blocked some of his efforts to strip protection from parts of the Amazon. For example, he wanted to abolish the environmental ministry entirely and put it under the ambit of the agricultural ministry, and they struck that down. But... Bolsonaro's also made it clear that rule breakers have nothing to fear. He's recorded videos appearing to defend illegal loggers and miners, and he can still encourage a whole lot of deforestation by not enforcing the laws that prohibit it. But if 17% of the rainforests has already been lost, is it clear already that that has impacts? Is it possible to see the slow slide? Yes. So in the past few decades... The temperature has risen across the basin about 0.6 degrees Celsius. This century alone, there have been three devastating droughts. The last one happened to fall during an El Nino year in 2015, and the increased temperatures from El Nino meant that that drought caused vast amounts of fire. I went to one of the areas that was burned in 2015, Santa Pará, which sits on a tributary of the Amazon River. If you go to the National Forest, 
where nearly a quarter burned. Even four years later, you can see signs of the destruction. There are still fallen trees all around. The trees that are standing often have charred black burn signs and appear to be drying out. The scientists we were walking with told us that this used to all be closed canopy forest. And we walked on a path starting at the riverbank, going deep into the forest and met some people who live in that area. The first people we encountered were an elderly couple named Magdalena and Antonio. They said they used to make their living hunting deer and armadillo, but now they were on their way to buy beef from the village. They said, basically, all the game is gone. Later on, we met a community leader who gave us a long list of all of the tree species that are starting to disappear because of the fires. So what can be done now to, to stop what's already happening in parts of the Amazon? How can this blooming ecological collapse be averted? So here in Brazil, it starts with enforcing the rules on deforestation. Brazil also needs to reject some of the recent efforts to further weaken that legislation. When Brazil was in Paris in 2015, it committed to completely stopping illegal deforestation by 2030 and actually reforesting 1.2 million square kilometers. Bolsonaro wanted to pull out of the Paris Agreement entirely, following in the footsteps of Donald Trump. But he backpedaled from that promise, partly because his agriculture minister and other farmers argued that to do so could result in boycotts of Brazilian goods. So that's actually a really important point of leverage. Brazil has just signed the beginning of a trade accord with the EU, and part of that involves upholding environmental protections. And so there's a role to be played by diplomats and companies and consumers in and outside of Brazil to send the message that soybeans and beef and other products coming from illegally logged land are not acceptable. So in your opinion, I mean, with this kind of set of prescriptions in hand, how likely is it, do you think, that the Amazon will not reach the tipping point, that Mr. Bolsonaro's agenda will not push the Amazon past it? Pessimistic environmentalists are certain that deforestation under Bolsonaro will pass 20%. So it's not a certain number, but the attitude that he and his government have toward the Amazon is one that almost certainly spells out more destruction. And as the scientists tend to say, there's no point in finding out where the tipping point lies by tipping it. At this point, it looks like we're coming very close. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. In 
In elections last year, Malaysia's reformist coalition Pakatan Harapan, or PH, ousted a regime that had been in power for six decades. The United Malays National Organization, or UMNO, led by Najib Razak, built an elaborately repressive edifice to keep itself in power. PH promised to end all that, and Malaysians seem swayed by its promises for change. Just after the victory, supporters of Mahathir Mohamed, the 94-year-old leader of PH, took to the streets of Kuala Lumpur to celebrate. But one year on, many illiberal laws remain on the books. Is PH up to the task of rehabilitating Malaysia's democracy? Pakatan Harapan came to power in a huge upset last year. And essentially, it is a reformist coalition of parties. Miranda Johnson is our Southeast Asia correspondent. When PH was campaigning to come into power, one of its main pitches to Malaysians was that it would do away with a lot of the repressive laws that enabled UMNO to block up critics. The trouble is that we are more than a year on since that election and many of the laws, including most troublingly the Sedition Act, still remain in place. All of this matters overall, though, because Malaysia and the surprise triumph of PH provided a piece of welcome good news in Southeast Asia, which is a region where we have seen democracy backsliding in recent years. There have been problems in Thailand, Myanmar and Cambodia in particular. So tell me more about these repressive laws. What what kind of stuff is illegal in Malaysia? So things that you have to be careful about in Malaysia um, in, in the past is sort of being too critical of Malaysia's government, being too critical of its courts, pointing out the problems in its system of racial preferences for Malays, who are the biggest ethnic group in the country. You have to be careful about what you say about these sultans who run Malaysia's different states as uh, criticising them could be deemed seditious. As mentioned, the Sedition Act is one of those for which people can find themselves in prison for a number of years. Also under Mr Najib's administration, a new law on fake news was adopted, which challenged the press and what it could say about the past government. And so if Pakatan Harapan came to power on a promise to repeal these laws, why hasn't it? So it's a tricky picture. And in fairness to PH, it has called a halt to most, but not quite all of the prosecutions under the laws that it criticised while it was in opposition. But it has had a very full plate since it came to power and it has been particularly focused on the economy because bread and butter issues were among those that helped propel it into office in the first place. So it's been looking at taxes, it's been looking at huge infrastructure projects that were agreed on, renegotiating them. But what critics are trying to point out is that if a lot of these laws are not repealed, it might mean that government critics in the future who could once again be PH 
members were the government to lose the next election would again face difficult terms in in prison and harassment of other sorts. But do you get the sense that the people in power are committed to making these reforms, but perhaps are just a bit distracted? So one of the most interesting figures in all of this, of course, is Mahathir Mohamed, who is the current prime minister, but who used to be Malaysia's prime minister for more than two decades under UMNO's flag. He notoriously abused the government's authority during his first stint as prime minister. Actually, at one point, he had over 100 critics detained without charge. But he does genuinely seem to have turned over a new leaf. He has actually helped drive some of the more commendable achievements of PH. That has included putting independent figures and and intelligent experts in important posts in the government. And what about the voters that put PH in power? Surely they're raising a stink about the fact that this central promise isn't being fulfilled. So it's difficult to ascertain precisely why different groups in Malaysia voted in Pakatan Harapan. Malaysians certainly voted for the coalition against all expectations. But again, it may have been more to do with the fact that they were fed up with the past government, fed up with the corruption in it, fed up with the economic difficulties, rather than that all Malaysians suddenly wanted a greater push for civil liberties. And so with that in mind, how important do you think it is that the government eventually does follow through and and repeal some of these repressive laws? Restoring political freedoms It's not just one item on a long to-do list. It is actually the reform that underpins all others. And Pakatan Harapan's totally shocking victory is a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance to make politics fairer in Malaysia. This is the best opportunity the country has had for more than 60 years. If Pakatan Harapan can't get the economy going, it may wind up back in opposition for a few years. But if it doesn't fundamentally restructure Malaysia's democracy and the laws that uphold it, it may be out of office for a generation. Because ultimately, that is what will best differentiate it from UMNO and from UMNO's years in power. Miranda, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jason. At most international borders, the authorities look for anything fishy. Drugs, weapons, cigarettes. In Norway, they're also actually looking for fish. Well, it might sound like the stuff of sea shanties, but fish smuggling is on the rise in Norway, and it has been over the last 10 years or so. Guy Kitty writes about European affairs for The Economist. In the first six months of this year, Toll, which is the Norwegian customs agency, has seized about eight tonnes of fish. And that compares to the height of the decade in 2017 of 11 tonnes. So at current rates, it looks like that 2017 high is going to be easily beaten this year. And so is this high seas piracy? Is this is this tourists? Is this uh, international smuggling rings? The authorities won't be drawn on this. I did ask this question and they were quite cagey about it. A lot of people go on holiday to Norway for active holidays and fishing is one of the main draws for people seeking that kind of experience. But... Given the amount of fish that the authorities are seizing at the borders, significantly more than people are allowed to take. And the other thing is that typically what the authorities are seeing is ready fillets. 
And that suggests that people are taking fish, they're processing it and then getting it ready for sale overseas. It's not just tourists taking home stuff for their own consumption. I mean, 11 tons as a, as a sort of all-time high doesn't actually sound like that much fish. It's not in the grand scheme of things, but in the Troms and Finnsmark counties of, of northern Norway, fishing really is the mainstay of the economy. There's not much else there. And if small fishing villages are going to suffer at the hands of people taking way more fish than they are allowed, then that might have an impact on those local communities. It sounds like tourism in this region might be something of a mixed blessing. Absolutely. Well, tourism in Norway is a relatively young phenomenon. It's only in the last 10 years or so that the country has gone from being quite a niche sort of winter wonderland destination to drawing tourists at all times of year. People tend to go to Norway in one of two ways, on a cruise ship or in a camper van. And neither means of transport tends to lend the visitor to spending an awful lot of money in the country. So yes, people are visiting the country, but they're not spending very much money there. And I spoke to one lady up in Lofoten, which is an archipelago off the northwest of the country, especially beautiful. And she didn't pull any punches. She said, look, people are coming here and we're quite fed up of them leaving, quote, nothing but shit and pollution. So, as you say, a mixed blessing. And so what's to be done then about the, uh, the, the fishy end of things as regards fishing? Well, the spot checks have increased and the fines have increased. There's growing talk now of introducing a tourist tax to deter tourists. Now, people are worried about deterring tourists, but that's also kind of the point, because if you deter those who are the budget travellers, let's say, and you welcome those who are perhaps willing to just open their wallets and not be so spendthrift, then clearly you reduce the problem of too many people visiting pristine places, but you also solve the problem of people not spending any money. Guy, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.